Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Alicia Curtis. Alicia is one of Western Australia's most inspiring social and business entrepreneurs as an award-winning speaker, leadership facilitator, and community change maker. At age 12, Alicia attended the first International Children's Conference organized by the UN and later co-founded her own children's conference in Perth. With a knack for inspiring crowds and empowering people to discover their own potential, Alicia established her leadership development company, Elysium, in 2001. Her work has received many awards for challenging the stereotypes of who can be leaders and the difference they can make. Alicia is also the co-founder and chair of 100 Women, an organisation with the vision of igniting women's philanthropy through the power of collective giving to advance the empowerment of all women. 100 Women has given away over $500,000 in the past four years and has awarded this to 17 different causes which support women and girls locally and globally. Alicia has also been named in the Westpac and Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence list and in addition was the 2018 EY Social Entrepreneur of the Year in the Western Region and voted in the Westpac 200 Businesses of Tomorrow list in 2017. What an amazing bio. Alicia, thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I I just have loved your listening to your blog post, your podcast, and just so honored to be part of it. Oh, thank you so much. Now, I said, um, I said in our last episode with Dr. Gemma Green, who I know that you know, that after uh, the recent EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards, you both made such an impression with the work that you were doing. And I was so eager to learn more about it and, and share it with our listeners. So I want to start when I was looking at your website, I saw that the book Half the Sky by Nicholas Christoph and Cheryl Woodun really inspired you and your co-founders to establish 100 Women. And that was the book that inspired me to study development studies. So I was really excited to read that. So what was it about the book that inspired you? Yeah, I think that book has started many different movements around the world. So it goes to show the power of storytelling, really, because what I think that book did so beautifully was that it just told these these stories of these people that didn't have voices. And for me, it was the despair and the opportunity that really resonated with me, the despair of these stories of these women that didn't have the same rights and uh, opportunities that I had. And, And almost I had this moment of like I would not allow this if they were my sister. Why would I allow it for anybody in the world to have these circumstances have um, have happened to them. And it's just, you know, your most basic rights of, you know, health, education, safety, economic freedom. Um, 
And so, yeah, half the time I was in tears reading these stories. But then on the flip side, it was also the opportunity that we had. They, they showed so beautifully the, the potential that we had to invest in women. And not only that, that when you did invest in women, whole communities thrived um, based on that. So um, for me, it was like, well, it's no brainer. We just need to get um, more support for women around the world. And this can be one of the best ways that we can um, improve society for the better. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And I, I think you really nailed it there when you said it It demonstrated to us the power of investing in women and it is an investment. And, and that was an emerging argument in development studies for so long that we're not we're not donating to women's causes per se. We're investing in women and it does have economic uh, outcomes for our society. And I think that book really articulated that to a mainstream audience. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's a, um, with any sort of investment and, you know, as we talk about philanthropy, you're looking for a, a return on investment. And, you know, in philanthropy, you're just looking for different social returns on investment as opposed to different financial returns. Um, and so, you know, those books, when you can see the levers that you can pull by investing in women and the outcomes, the various outcomes that can arise, um, not only to the women themselves, you know, but but to their whole you know their families and their communities um yeah it just makes it a no-brainer it sure does now I'm curious about how this happened though did you all read the book at the one time like were you in a book club Oh. No, no. I, I read the book myself and then I um, I was driving home um, from a workshop that I got one of my um, good friends who uh, was involved in Millennium Kids, which was one of the first not-for-profits that I was involved with. We were kind of having this conversation on the way home from a, a place about an hour out of Perth where we were facilitating a youth leadership workshop and we were having this conversation like ideas to change the world for the better uh, the best car conversations yeah so, you know, I, okay I stand up I say yes my name is Alicia and I have these sorts of conversations you know these are the things that gets me going and so we were talking about you know what were some of the new ideas that we had and we were throwing that around different ideas and I said to her I've just read this book and it's amazing and you know we've got to get more you know um funding into the hands of you know projects and and uh and, and women basically projects that support women and I you know I've got this idea of getting just a hundred women together um, uh, and imagine if we all gave a hundred dollars a month um, to this cause that we could put in and pull our funds together and then give away um, ourselves and for us you know we've always been on the other um, side of the funding application forms where we're you know writing applications to get funding in to do the projects that yep, we want yep. to do and we were just like oh, imagine if we could be the ones giving away the funds how awesome would that be and so we were like really excited and she had had some um, involvement in grant giving as well, being involved in a couple of other not-for-profits that, you know, gave away funds. Um, and and I had been involved in a whole range of different youth um, or women's organisations that were um, trying to gain funds for different leadership programs and so on. And there was just this 
you know, sparse um, opportunity for these organisations to get funding to help women and girls. And I just went, gosh, you know, if we can't get, you know, access to funding in Australia for women and girls, you know, imagine what it can be like around the world. Um, So it was a simple conversation in the car that really kicked this whole thing off. Um, And and it's, you know, grown and, you know, doubled since then. Yeah, yeah, let's get into that growth. I find it really interesting that you said imagine us being on the other side of the table like imagine if we were the ones because you probably up to that point hadn't considered yourselves philanthropists um and I know that's that's what a lot of your work has been focused on is redefining philanthropy so at your TEDx Perth talk and so cool that you gave a talk at TEDx I'm obsessed um in in November you told your audience that you don't have to be rich or famous to be a philanthropist why do we need to redefine our understanding of philanthropy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd never considered myself as a philanthropist. You know, I'd always given my time to causes that meant something to me and that was a way that I could give back. And as a young person, you're not in sometimes, you you don't feel like you're in the financial situation to be able to give funds. But I thought, well, what if we could, you know, unlock um, potential funds by gathering people who don't actually feel like they can be philanthropists? And it's almost that, you know, society has um, characterised philanthropy Philanthropy is something that only the rich and famous can be involved in. That only Oprah can do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my my constant question to people is like, you know, who do you acknowledge as philanthropists in the world? And you're, you know, Oprah is probably one of the most, um, one of the only females that you'll hear. You know, most of it will be, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the, you know, Bill Gates and the Andrew Forrests, you know, you know, a lot of mostly older white men mm-hmm. and you know they do great work in the community and I'm definitely knocking not knocking their contributions to the world because we need actually our business leaders to step up and say yes you know we're going to make a difference with the fortunes that we have created but what if you know are we underestimating the potential for our everyday Australians for everyday people around the world to create the change that they want by pooling their funds and so this was sort of the, the interesting question that, you know, I, I continued to put out to, you know, audiences as I was speaking and, and people as I was as talking to other change makers and really see what could we, what could we explore? How could we un, unravel the potential for everyday Australians to be, you know, everyday philanthropists? And could that be something of interest to people? And throughout my um, my discussions with people, I, you know, found, I unraveled this, you know, original meaning of the word philanthropist to be lover of humanity. And I thought, wow, you know, this has really changed to what we see it today. So, you know, it's all about trying to engage philanthropy as a mechanism or a, a vehicle um, for social change and actually get more women involved in giving away funding as well. So, put them in the driver's seat and you know sometimes uh you know as women we sometimes 
you know, err on the side of, you know, our finances. But what about if we came together as a collective and actually explored this, you know, financial investment that we could make in the community to have that social return that we were we were all seeking? We were looking for ways to make the world a better place in different in different ways. What if we could use the mechanism of, you know, donations, pooled donations and, and do it collectively to almost negate or mitigate the risks of, you know, investing um, when we came together with all our different um, knowledge and, and skill bases, um, we actually came together with this, you know, stronger outlook of, um, of, of what we could achieve. And so, you know, myself personally, I might be too afraid to make, you know, decisions around where I invest funds. But, you know, when I come together with, you know, the, you know, the hundreds of people now that um, stand behind 100 women I know that we have got you know just such a, an amazing skill set and knowledge base behind us that it gives me so much confidence to move forward um, and 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 really that's been um, evidenced by the you know the fantastic projects that we've been able to fund and, and receive feedback about yeah wow that's so inspiring you made a point there that I hadn't really considered that traditional philanthropy which is old white men, giving to uh, poor foreign women, there's a real structural issue with that, isn't it? Like we're we're recreating a lot of the structural inequalities that that got us into this position in the first place with a lot of the the development challenges we face. So when we actually put women in that position of power where where it's women helping women, not only are we sending finances in the right direction, but we're unraveling some of those structural inequalities too. Well, that's right. I remember, you know, even just listening to Elliot Costello's um, podcast with you um, as I was uh, subscribing to this podcast, you know, he was talking about, you know, we've got to start investing in people who live in the places that we're trying to support and not, you know, get away from this whole white saviour or, you know, we know better and we're going to come in and we're going to, you know, fix your country when in fact they've got, you know, a beautiful sense of what's going to work in their own country. And so for us, it's, you know, a a different sort of flavour of, you know, investment where we're, you know, um, really connecting as women. And, you know, some of the grants that we have given um, really apply um, to issues that really women have a great sense about, like, you know, investing in sanitary products for women in regional uh, and rural Cambodia is something that once you start thinking about that, you'd go, yeah, gosh, if I didn't have any access to that, like, mm. you know, imagine what life would be like. And, you know, only, a, you know, another fellow woman, I think, can really understand what that would be yeah. like. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that connection is so important, I think. Yeah, it really is. And I, I realised um, today is Giving Tuesday internationally. So I thought what a good day that we're doing this and we're talking about giving and, and how to how to be a philanthropist. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody should be given the opportunity to be a philanthropist. You know, when we look at the word philanthropist, it really does come back to just having careful consideration and efforts go into where you give your funds. And so for 100 Women, we are about educating people to become powerful philanthropists. And really the, the amount of money is um, – 
you know, is irrelevant. Um, if, you know, you'll probably give just as much as those big philanthropists, you know, famous philanthropists that we see, they're only giving a percentage of their income, um, just like you and I. And sometimes we can actually, as a percentage of our giving, could be giving away more of our, um, our um, yearly salary just in terms of the percentage that we give. So everybody's... Um, Everybody has a, a percentage that they can give and that, that's um, irrelevant. But what's more important is that we focus on how we're going to give that in the most beneficial way to our community. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think for our listeners' benefit, um, so just to get into the specifics of how this works, so 100 Women gives annual grants donated by over 450 people to a number of causes internationally. Um, and it, so it functions like a giving circle. So can you talk about how those causes are selected and why grants are given on an annual basis? Yeah, so I didn't even know that there was a particular type of giving, like a giving circle. This is how much, you know, the, the learning curve has been huge for me. Like I thought, yeah, we could get people together and we all give a small amount into a pool of funding and then give it away. And, you know, as we're growing the team of 100 women, you know, some some people who studied philanthropy have sort of gone, yes, this is called giving circle <laughs> and it's one of the, you know, the biggest trends in philanthropy and I'm just like whoa I've got so much to learn about this so but you know the research around giving circles and getting people involved in giving circles is just immense you know it, it is a new and emerging trend and the more people get involved through a giving circle they you know the research says that they will start giving more to their community they'll give more often they'll get more knowledgeable about the causes that they give back to so it's a really great way of getting people involved in their community and in, and involved in social change. So yes, we we have we've had over 450 donors over the last um, five years. So I think we're at about 175 um, every year, and that sort of um, kept you know slowly increasing. Uh, in our first year, we had. 80 um, donors who gave 100 grand. Um, so it's it, we we pull the funds together over the year. So now we make it we try and make it as easy as possible for people to give to us. So they can give us it in one annual donation. They can split it up and give us a monthly donation if that helps uh, the budget. We you can choose three different levels of impact. So 300, 600, or 1200 dollars a year. Um, we're really trying to make it as inclusive as possible for people to get involved where they're at. And then we pull that up throughout the year. So we work on a calendar year and, you know, um, in November every year we give away the funds. So the grant-making process goes for about six months and we have a group of members who form a subcommittee to do all the due diligence on the grants uh, that come in. Every year we have about 40 to 60 applications applications that come in for our three or four grants so you know that just gives you a sense of the demand that's you know out there for um, funding that supports women and girls across Australia and then internationally as well even though the majority of our donors are from uh, Western Australia from Perth we do give to projects right across Australia and and right across the world so it really 
um, you know, we're, we're open to having donors. We're having open to having members um, from right across Australia, really, and that's where we would plan to to grow. So our subcommittee, our grant making subcommittee, come together. They um, look at those um, forty to sixty applications, and they go about doing all the the checks and um, the due diligence. And you know, they've got a, a very robust process that they follow, which is um, directed by a couple of our members who are very knowledgeable about philanthropy and about grant giving. Uh, and then we invite, you know, any member to be involved in that process. And so um, they sign up for a pretty, yeah, full-on um, couple of months of reading applications, of double-checking te- each other's work, and then coming together and, and just having some really robust conversations around, you know, what, what fits with what we're trying to fund. And so it goes from an expression of interest um, to a full application and then uh, a shorter list that is then sent out to all of our members and then all our members can do their due diligence so they can um, read about the organisations, they can read about the projects, they can go do their checks uh, and they can talk to their friends, talk to their families, think about what what resonates most with them and put their final votes in and then at our gala event every year we celebrate the two, three, four grants that we get to give away every year. Wow. I love that the the people involved, your the the people in the giving circle get to have so much oversight of of where the money's going. I think that's that's a really powerful thing. And you know, when we empower people to have that more meaningful role, you you do take that. Like you I think you really take that on board. I know with me I have a organization that I donate to monthly and I love reading their reports like every time I get their newsletter I read the whole thing I read their annual reports because I feel invested in it and I think that's that's really special yeah the the feedback from our members who get involved in the subcommittee just overwhelmingly is so positive they just are so grateful for the opportunity to learn more about grant making um, to learn more about the organizations that have um, applied for the grants and then yes every member you know does take that um, vote you know that one vote on very seriously and you know many of them will you know as part of the the benefit of of a giving circle they get this awareness of these great organizations and projects Um, and so we only get to you know in the end um, grant a couple of them but part of that benefit is them finding out about you know fabulous projects all around the world yeah yeah now you did say that you get upwards of 50 applications for the grants um, I think this raises an interesting point because one of the biggest trends I see facing the for-purpose sector or the not-for-profit sector, whichever you prefer to call it, um, is the emergence of new sources of funding and the decline of traditional sources of funding, in particular government funding um, and you know funding from the general public Um I, I think a, a lot of us would say we have some donor fatigue in Australia, mm. but there are, you know, there's so many charities, it's so hard to navigate this landscape. Mm. So it is a fundamental shift. I see it as a huge opportunity for the sector um, to explore new and innovative sources of financing. Giving circles are an emerging way 
of um, of organisations receiving financing. So how, I mean, how do you navigate a giving circle in the broader philanthropic landscape and in, in this broader environment of emerging sources of funding? And what would be your advice to organisations struggling to attract the funding that they need? Yeah, look, I totally endorse what you're saying around um, the, the huge changes to how we finance for purpose organisations. When I started off with Millennium Kids or the Kids Helping Kids conferences when I was 12 years old, you know, a lot of our original funding would come from, you know, government departments or uh, corporate organisations that were giving, you know, um, significant grants out. Um, And, you know, it's and or some private philanthropy of some kind, so, you know, family foundations or so on. That's where the majority of the funds were. But now it's, like, totally changed. The the landscape has totally changed. You know, government are not giving out, you know, huge amounts of funding. Corporates are really changing up the way that they fund as well. They might not give um, out as many grants as they used to or they're giving in different ways. So my work within the for-profit, uh, for-purpose sector has really been able to understand the, the variety of, um, of financial um, models that organizations are using and what I've seen is they're going from a real reactive perspective to a real proactive perspective so instead of waiting for money to come they're looking for proactive ways to create their own incomes and whether that's investments in certain ways social enterprise and understanding different uh, enterprise arms that they can set themselves up uh, with you know selling apps you know just really incredible um, examples of not-for-profits that are working in real traditional spaces but approach things from a, a different way and, and being able to commercialize really their IP, their knowledge uh, for the benefit of creating their own funding models, which is really great to see. And I think, you know, organizations that are looking for ways to attract, you know, finances need to look at what their key strengths are. I mean, even just with 100 women, even though a very small organization, so we, we have funded ourselves. We've never actually taken a commission off of the donations that we have received. But we've looked at our strengths, and one of our strengths have been the ability to galvanise groups of people to come together. And so our events have been a huge part of what we have done. And we have made that into our money-making side of our our organisation. So, you know, make uh, making our, you know, our funding by being able to provide a service, which is education, philanthropy education, education. Um, events that, you know, um, support networking and connection amongst women who want to not just go to a networking event just to push cards into each other's hands but actually come together with like-minded people and talk about real issues that matter to us and in doing that be able to network with, you know, a wide variety of, of 
women and men that we haven't actually had the opportunity of connecting with. So look at what your strengths are. You know, maybe there is a specific um, uh, set of IP that you have that you can commercialise in some way. Look at the funding models that um, could potentially work for you, whether it's social enterprise. Maybe it's not, and then don't go down that pathway, right? I've seen, you know, plenty of organisations that have gone, oh, yeah, we'll just set up a social enterprise on the side and just have no business expertise whatsoever, you know. You know, go with the strengths of your organisation. I think you've also got to catalyze, you know, the champions that really resonate with your um, purpose as well. So really pulling together your community of people and, and finding out what they want as well. Do they want to be involved in collective giving? Do, you know, are there um, private philanthropists that really care about what your um, what your purpose is? So looking at the strengths of your your community and what champions you have to to connect with and, and really trying to be just more creative with your, you know, the funding sources that are out there. That's a really good answer and I think that will be so helpful for so many of our listeners. And I like that last point especially is is finding your point of difference. You know, if you've if you've had the courage and the passion to start a not-for-profit, then there's a spark there and you just need to see what that spark is and, and, and make sure that that's what, what others are seeing as well. Um, yeah, it's such it's such an exciting time for the sector, I think. And I, I think what 100 Women is doing is is um, a great example of 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 the potential of um, well, the future of philanthropy. But it's not the future; it's now, which is really exciting. Um, now, the other question I wanted to ask around 100 Women is: How do you measure the impact of the investments that 100 Women? is making is that something that you leave up to the recipients of the grants to do their own outcome measurement work um or is that something that you do yourself yeah that's like the $64,000 question right at the moment you know how do we measure the impact of our of our grants and you know I think what needs to happen is a lot more investment in this area because I I know even large organizations who've just gone too hard it's too hard to measure um and have left it there so for us we have an acquittal process obviously for our grant recipients to track both the inputs and the outputs of what they're creating Um, and so that's the the tracking that we do to be able to report back to our members what I would love to do is and what I'm interested in really funding just personally is you know these projects that really do seem to have this long-term opportunity for change so you know for example when we're investing in Aboriginal women in Fitzroy Valley to become community health researchers in their community, yes, that has, you know, certain health impacts directly and, you know, straight away as they're being able to help the research of Telethon Kids Institute. But then there's so many other, you know, 
untracked, you know, impacts that can be created. You know, their kids seeing uh, their mums be, you know, to, to go through education and be educated and be part of their community in different ways. Just the the potential for them to be role models, um, and 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 then there's also the economic benefits of that. You know, they may then take on that that education and and then seek further education and be more qualified. And you know, we have seen that with the earbus where Aboriginal women are becoming more qualified to become audiologists and ear, nose and throat specialists and go out to Aboriginal communities to support, you know, the benefits of kids, just Aboriginal kids just being able to hear what's going on in their schools. So I suppose what I'm saying here is what I'd love to see and what we'd love to get more investment ourselves in is tracking that over the long term. But, you know, long-term measurements is always more difficult and, you know, finding the exact links and and the cause and effects is is more uh, difficult. Um, But I think for us it's about building a community, a strong community that actually keeps in touch with these people um, and and follows their journey over the long term um, and and really using that as the basis of, um, you know, measuring our impact. Yeah, yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. And something I hear so much from the organisations I work with is we know what sort of short-term outcomes there are of our work, but we think we're having this really profound impact 10 to 20 years down the track, but it's just so hard to communicate, and it is, um, especially, you know, with attribution. To what extent can we attribute the changes that have occurred over a 20-year period back to receiving that single grant? And it can yeah. be done and it is important work, but I totally agree it is challenging. Yeah, you said it just beautifully there. And, I, you know, for us I think it's about um, making sure that we galvanise this community, we keep in touch with people, we develop those long-term relationships and and continue to promote uh, what these great organisations are doing to our, our um, donor community and really be able to give them the opportunities to further connect with people who might give them, you know, further donations or even in-kind support later down the track to keep um, investing, you know, using our grant as a catalyst for further support uh, and investment in what they're doing too. And, you know, I think there can be, you know, huge benefits from those in-kind donations that occur just through the promotion of, you know, these grant projects to our, our broader community. So that's even a different side to the whole impact management too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's really exciting. Now, Elysium, is the leadership development organisation that you run. And Elysium runs a board ignition program which supports emerging leaders to become board members on not-for-profit boards. Um, As the not-for-profit sector navigates a number of challenges, some that we've discussed here, including new and emerging sources of finance and the decline of traditional sources of finance, among a plethora of other challenges, what are the most important skills for -for not-for-profit board members to have? Mm, that's a, such a really great question because I'm exploring it often with prospective board directors and the board ignition really, that course is really about engaging new and diverse board directors to be able to take the step to sit on their first board, community board. And so I often almost think that skills, we've got to talk more 
than just skills as well because skills are only one part of what we bring to the boardroom and as young professionals or you know retirees or you know um, people from culturally diverse backgrounds yes everybody brings a skill set that's kind of like a foregone conclusion but it's what else we can bring to the boardroom which really excites and interests me and I think if you're talking to any board of a community organization it's almost what is what else they can bring other than the skill set which really makes the difference to it and that an exciting board director, an effective board director. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, boardroom behaviours, for one. Um, do you have the ability to have robust conversations around the boardroom table without letting your ego take over and getting defensive about ideas? Are you willing to be an open learner? Are you willing to go out and really sit in the shoes of the people that you are serving and bring back those insights to the decisions that you're making in the boardroom do you feel comfortable doing that um there's this uh, mindset of integration now you know it's not just about silos of dealing with you know the the issues of your organization but how are they imp- um, reacting to the external and internal trends of of the organization and society as a whole can you be curious about what's happening in society and then bring that back in a valuable way uh, on the board that you serve so there's, you know, those boardroom behaviours that I think are, are just integral. You know, networks as well. Like I think a lot of the time innovation comes from bringing new networks, new markets to different not-for-profit organisations. So as young professionals or people in the corporate sector um, or people from different cultural backgrounds, they're all the time bringing in new and different stakeholders, which can be really exciting. Um, um, and, and serve to um, provide a lot of innovation to what not-for-profits are, are doing. So I think it's it's those sorts of mindsets, boardroom behaviours, networks that actually are providing what is required of the new board director more so than skill sets and you know yes we can talk about skill sets you you've always got you know your need for legal and accounting and um, strategy um, all of those sorts of skill sets you know there's real new emerging uh, skill sets that board directors or boards are looking for um, culture, um, uh, marketing, you know, a lot of the time they're going out and having to market their services for the first time ever. Um, so they've not really necessarily had those skill sets on their board um, currently. Um, you know, people with uh, global experience, I think, you know, they want people who have gone out into the world and come back and understand how organisations can and, and, uh, and will change into the future. Um, how we're dealing with not-for-profits now could be very different to how we're even dealing with them in, say, 10 years' time. So ability to be adaptable, um, open change, uh, open to change uh, and innovation is just integral. It sounds to me like in the modern boardroom, soft skills are far more important than hard skills. Yeah, and I would even call them contemporary skills, you know, more so than, you know, soft skills mm. now. It's it like <laughs> the, uh, the perception that they are soft 
yeah. as opposed yeah, to heart. Wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> the, you know, these are the skills that you need more so than anything else. It takes you know um, huge amount of emotional intelligence. It takes um, an ability to uh, you know really put the mission of the organisation first and. And this is challenging everybody in the boardroom because, you know, there's more and more decisions, there's more and more pressure, there's more and more competition that is happening and, you know, board directors need to come with a sense a sense of what these contemporary skills are and be open for it. I say it's one of the best leadership development experiences that you can have yeah. um, because, it, you know, in real time you are having to really check in with yourself and make sure that you are providing value as, as an individual and then also be open to the evaluation of how are we working as a team and making sure that you as a team are working in the best way that you can for the organization too. Fantastic. Okay, I have our last question that I want to finish on. So I I started this podcast because I'm a really passionate advocate of private sector led change in international development and I'm such a big believer that the private sector can play a very meaningful role and has always played a meaningful role in social change um, but can play a more meaningful role um, and really uh, epitomise that do no harm principle. In your view, what role can the private sector play in more meaningfully contributing to positive social change both in Australia and abroad? Yeah, I wanted to, when you asked that question, I was thinking about actually another book that it really inspired me to set up my own business, you know, as, as a, you know, being a, a very committed volunteer throughout my teen years, I was actually really inspired by the role of business as a vehicle for social change by Anita Roddick's book, um, Business as Unusual. And she was the founder of The Body Shop. Um, we lost her way too soon and she un- uh, is unfortunately not with us now, but she was really this pioneer in the space of people and planet before profits. And, you know, the, the, the the ups and downs that she went through to create a business around this was just amazing. And I, it's like my Bible, my business Bible. I go back to it for um, advice and inspiration because the things that she wrote down in this book is as good today as it was 15, 20 years ago. Now, now the space of um, how do corporates give back is so much more sophisticated. You've got the conscious capitalism movement. You've got, you know, really brilliant resources out there for businesses to to share. And I suppose what I wanted to get across with my perspective on this um, on this space is the ability for businesses to empower their staff to sit on. Um, community boards and you know we often think that that might take them away from their you know their paid job role because it does take time and effort being a board director but I think actually it can benefit the not-for-profit sector by you know having a range of people from different corporate backgrounds sitting and giving their expertise to these organizations and letting them pick the brains of you know these amazing people um, and how that expertise can really make a difference for the 
the community organization. But I think it also can work the other way as well that, you know, by our professionals, our corporate professionals having this experience of what's happening in the community, of serving a community need, and then taking that back into the workplace can actually have a profound um, effect for the corporates as well. And, you know, we often talk about the need for the community sector to be commercialised in different ways and to, you know, have business skills, proper business skills. And, you know, anybody who's done a lot of work in the not-for-profit sector know that actually the business skills of our not-for-profit leaders are like almost second to none, what they are able to create on the income they, yeah. they have is exceptional. But what we're also finding is that the community, the, the the corporate sector are learning that actually, if you engage a purpose broader than yourself, broader than profits, that that can be hugely motivating and rewarding for people. And so they're starting to go, okay, well, what is our purpose beyond the profit that we're making? And so I think if we give more of our employees these days the opportunities to sit on community boards, then I think it actually brings back 10 times that amount back in terms of benefits for the corporate um, as well. And, you know, earlier this year, I, I raised a I wrote a white paper on this because I was really trying to get corporates to consider that, yes, it may be a couple of hours, you know, a week that they contribute as a board director to community organisation, but the benefits that can be um, attributed to that um, can be just um, amazing. So consider that as one part of your co corporate, you know, social responsibility and and um, an employee, you know, value proposition because I think people want the time and, and space to be able to give back to community. And if you're, you know, working them so hard that, you know, they can't spend a night, a month, um, contributing to a community organization then I think we need to ask some serious questions about what we're doing here yeah I love that you've just provided such a tangible thing businesses can do is make time Absolutely. for your employees to join community boards we'll um if that white paper is publicly available we'll include a link to that in our show notes yeah, for today absolutely um Alicia this has just been so inspiring you've inspired me to join a board you've inspired me to give more I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, consider this for weeks, I imagine. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Rachel. And well done for putting your heart and your skills and soul into, you know, this podcast because it, it offers such great value in our community. So well done. If you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or jumping onto one of our social media pages. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Goodwill Pod. Thanks and see you next week.